Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I'm joined by a good friend, Kent Warren, who has recently decided to take the leap of faith that I hope all of you take at one time in the near future to cut that security line to the company he loved and come down and start living a dream I know he's had for a long time, something that's been in the works, but you know he really enjoyed his nine to five back in the States. That took him, I think, down to the Caribbean for a period of time um, and making good money and I think he just kind of got caught up in that. We're going to find out really what happened and why he's back here in Nicaragua now. So welcome to the show, Kent. How are you? I'm feeling great. Really good to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you, man. So we go way back. Kent has been a part of my life since 2005. And Kent, maybe you can just go into a little bit about your history because I know it's unique, especially with your dad's adventures and antics in Mexico. Can you maybe start with a little bit about where you grew up and then how your whole life kind of moved to Mexico at one point? Yeah. Um, well, my parents were kind of surfer, surfer hippies, um, both born in Chicago, uh, later met in uh, California, surfers. Um, they were traveling through Mexico, and myself and my brother were both born down there in a little town called San Francisco, Nayarit, San Pancho. Um, we were there till I was there till I was about two and a half. Uh, my parents moved back to Chicago, and I spent the next uh, bunch of years moving around in different places. So younger years, Chicago, did a little stint in Sacramento, back to Chicago. Um, at that point, actually, my parents split up. My dad did a stint uh, in Alaska as a head chef on a king crab processing ship up there for a while. Uh, a little bit later, he and my uncle, his brother, started a business in Southern Baja called Mag Bay Tours, uh, which is still in operation today, 27, 28 years later. Um, I then, uh, for my eighth grade year, got to leave school and moved back to Mexico, and I spent a year on this island, 13 months, uh, working for my dad uh, at the surfing tour company, which is kind of my first uh, foray into the world of tourism, customer service, and that sort of thing, which definitely paved a road for a lot of other things that I did later. That's incredible. But can we get specifically into your dad starting Magbay Tours? Because I know that it's a small island off the coast of Mexico <laughs> that... Did he discover the wave or was the wave already discovered and he just decided to make a surf camp out there? So I'm going to see if I have the story exactly right from my memory. But uh, my uncle uh, was a pilot, small plane pilot um, and surfer. And he was doing small flights into southern Baja, just all over Baja, actually, and taking some friends on little surf trips. And they flew over this one point here. Uh, the island's called Isla um, Magdalena and Isla San Lazaro, and they saw this awesome wave as they're cruising over in the middle of nowhere off the coast of Southern Baja. And they stopped, did some a camping trip, and little by little, did a few more trips, and friends wanted to go, and more friends wanted to go, and they decided you say to start. stopped, it. like they landed They landed on the, the plane on the island. Again, that this didn't is, have a runway. No runway. They landed on the beach. Um, that's my understanding. It's my, my memory of the whole thing. Um, and this was, again, 
you know, 27 years ago is, you know, early 90s, something like that. So there's very little out there. Um, and they decided to grow it into a business. And at the time, my dad was, uh, working in Alaska. And, you know, the story I hear is my uncle calls my dad and said, Hey, Steve, you know, my, and my dad has years of experience in Mexico and working in Mexico, uh, separate from the, what I was talking about earlier. And my dad came on down and fell in love with this place. Um, and they built this business together, um, over a number of years and grew it from taking, you know, groups of four and five people out there. And actually to this day, my dad only takes a group of 12 or 13 people out there, you know, super, just you and your friends out there, three different point breaks. It's beautiful. I recommend anyone who wants to go out and surf it. It's an amazing spot. Um, later, actually my brother, uh, excuse me, my dad and his brother, my uncle kind of parted ways from a business standpoint. Uh, and my uncle owns another business, uh, Bahia Ventures on sort on the Sea of Cortez side, a little farther north. Um, and he also does, uh, I think some surfing trips, uh, definitely some whale watching, uh, a beautiful thing as well. So the Mag Bay tour scene though, I mean, from the stories you've told me, like it's very rustico, like rustic and your dad's been doing this 27 years. Oh yeah. So the lifestyle is very interesting to me and unique because can you explain kind of the ambiance, yeah. the atmosphere, what people could expect if they chose to go to Mag Bay tours? Yeah. Um, so getting out there, it's definitely rustico. Um, you got to go to the small town called Puerto San Carlos. Um, about 200 miles north of Cabo on the Pacific side. From there, you take a panga out to the island. They haul your boat across on a trailer to the other side of the island. And then it's another, I think it's about a seven mile trip across. And you're on this desert point. There's nothing else around you for many miles. Um, and we make it really comfortable out there when you're there. Uh, there's these conduit and uh, tubing and tarp structures with tents inside. Um, you're eating fish and lobster and amazing seafood and they bring a lot out there, but you're in the middle of nowhere. You know, my, <laughs> uh, my dad is amazed that to this day, no one has ever been seriously injured out there because if somebody did get hurt, you'd have to get airlifted out. I mean, it's, it, would, it takes you many hours to get back to like, civilization. And logistically your dad put that all together. I mean, he had uh -huh. locals build the, the, the system to drag that boat across yeah. the island. Like he made all that happen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the early days, my uncle and my dad, but it was very small and, uh, but there's been much more established lines of communication now. And I'll tell you, having a cell phone and internet out there has changed the game a little bit as it, as it does here in Higante. Oh, um, yeah, everything from, you know, figuring out how to get a week's worth of food out there at a time. And, you know, we bring all the fresh water. There's no desalination. There's nothing out there. So you're bringing blocks of ice and coolers, all like 50 gallon drums of fresh water. Um, uh, first aid kits are a must. <laughs> um, but they, they try to live off the land from a seafood standpoint as much as you possibly can. I mean, that's part of the experience when you go out there. I mean, I grew up when I was out there at age 12, we'd go out there and, uh, spear lobster and, and pick, get abalone and things like that ourselves. Can I ask, maybe you can give me your own personal perspective, like on your dad's psyche for the last 27 years to maintain that sort of enthusiasm. Cause I mean, it's rough. It's a hard life. Like, even though he probably loves what he does, like he never got burnt out. Like what's I mean? My dad's a unique character and you've met him. Uh, several other people that I know have met my dad and they're always just amazed at what it, enthusiastic character he is. I mean, he loves life genuinely. And so he's always stoked on what he's doing. And, you know, he, for years I've asked him, I remember when I was a teenager asking him like, Hey dad, are you ever going to move back to the States? And, you know, early on he said, no, I've, I found home. This is it. Um, 
and he just, he stoked, he grew up, um, surfing and doing, you know, driving into Mexico and living on beans and rice for months at a time. And just since he was a kid, that's what he loved. So him being in this middle of nowhere place is kind of his happy place. And, um, and he loves the adventure. Um, and he loves, you know, he's loved also building a business. It's, he's a small business owner. Um, and he's had his trials and tribulations and, be honest, uh, it's never really been a profitable venture from as far as a long-term uh, plan for him. But I'll tell you, he loves his life. And everyone who goes down there, he's had clients who've been down there 20 years in a row. And every single year they come back, groups of people. And now they've had uh, fathers and sons. And you know now there's grandsons who all come. And it becomes this real, like, he calls it the Magbay Tours, like the boys club. Because people just come out there and love it. And he's part of it. If he's not there, I think it would be harder for people to want to do that. Because he's such a such a character and a light out there. Um, I'd like to tie into this story, something that I didn't know until you had told me about it, but you being out there at eighth grade for that Mm -hmm. 13 months and you had a a sailor come into port at one point. Yep. And that sailor happened to be Dale Dagger Mm -hmm. from episode four of Misfits and Rejects, who now resides in Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that first encounter with Dale Dagger, the pioneer as we know him? Yeah. Um, and, and what he was like back then and, and what, and how it all transpired. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. That's a long time ago in my memory. So I, I have known Dale since I was 12 or 13 as a kid and he and my dad formed a friendship. So again, if I remember the story right, he, you know, he, uh, brought his, uh, catamaran, I think it was called the Tonga at the time into, uh, Magdalena Bay. And he planning on just continuing on down the coast. Uh, but you know, my dad's out there and has this cool little camp and my dad's friendly and it's this lone sailor out there and you invited him up and they, uh, they formed a friendship just hanging out. They're two kind of old surfer characters. And Dale ended up staying out there for, I want to say nine months or a year, a long time. Um, on his boat, just anchored in the little harbor, I'm assuming. Yeah. He'd go in like inland from, uh, where the point is. Um, there's a mangrove forest back there. And he, uh, you know, he managed to hook up, tied it down so it's really safe. Um, and he had his little dinghy and he ended up working with my dad. So he'd come out and take, uh, some of my dad's clients out to go fishing or tour them around in the estuaries and things like that. So he was able to make a little bit of money as well. Um, and you know, Dale, Dale's a character. He's got great stories. He's an entertaining person. Um, and so they just got along really well for a long time. And I remember when I came out, I got to meet Dale. And I just kind of remember him as, you know, 12 year old. It's kind of a older guy. He kind of looks like Jack O'Neill at the time. He had this big, gnarly beard, uh, still white hair at the time. Um, and he was really friendly though. Uh, we had this experience. A hurricane came in, um, while we're out there. And that's a scary thing, but it happens just every single year. We had to tear down camp and you, we bring rocks up the cliff and, and batten down the hatches. And then while the hurricane was happening, we literally had to lay down on the ground all night in the rain. But the next morning, as it's still breaking, I walked into the estuary to kind of be safe. We didn't have any food or water anymore. And he let me, he you know brought me on the boat. And I think I spent like 12 hours on the boat with him. Um, and we'd known each other at the time. And I kind of remember him being a little bit of a saving grace for me out there. Just, uh, um, just again, funny memories as I, as I talked through the story. Um, and I don't remember, you know, why he, why they, he ended up leaving, but it was probably just time for him to continue on down the coast, but they maintained that friendship for a long time. Um, and actually Dale, um, and another guy, Ken Ross, who I can talk about later if we want, um, were the reason why my dad first came down to Nicaragua was years later. They're like, Hey Steve, we've got this awesome, cool spot down in Nicaragua. You got to come check this out. 
That's cool. You will get to that later. Let's yeah. uh, kind of transition back to where we were. So you, you spent, you know, your eighth grade, ninth grade year in there. Yeah. On Mag Bay, on Magdalena Bay tours. Yep. And then you went back to the States and just went on as a normal sort of kid or? Yeah. So I got to, I was fortunate to essentially skip eighth grade because all I did, I didn't do any schooling on the island. I read some books and stuff. Um, while I was there, my mother and my brother had moved from Chicago to Philadelphia, uh, where my grandparents lived, her parents. And so I came back and interviewed with the kind of, uh, what is the school, not the school board person, but the cluster school leader head person and told them about my experiences on the island and how I read a lot. I learned to speak fluent Spanish. That's when I really solidified my Spanish. Um, I learned how to run business. I learned customer service. My dad had put me in charge of inventory. So I had a pretty educational year. It just wasn't the scholastic education. And when I told them all about it, they said, well, you know, okay, we'll let you in just right into high school, ninth grade. And if, if you have any real challenges, we'll get you some tutors, you know, somehow something that you missed. And, you know, if you're having, you know, if somehow you've lost it, we'll pull you back in eighth grade and that'll be what happened. I'm like, okay, no problem. And it was never an issue at all. Uh, of course, I established myself really well. I was actually valedictorian. <laughs> it all worked out really well. That's great. Um, and then transitioning out of high school, was it always a dream to get back to that lifestyle with your dad? Or was it yeah. just like, now it's time to go 9 to 5? It was. Um, I'm fortunate, again, in my parents, they always promoted travel. And so even throughout high school, uh, I would leave through the summers. Actually, there was one thing I forgot to mention. Almost every single year for about six or seven years, my brother and I would spend months uh, back at, at Mag Bay. So every summer was there. Um, and then after high school, actually, uh, I took a year off. I wasn't quite ready to go into school. So I took a year off and I worked a little bit and I did some road trips all across the U.S. I went back into Mexico and I hung out um, before I was finally ready to go into college. Okay. Um, but it, it was a dream because, you know, my, my dad's running a surf camp. My uncle's doing it. I really enjoy it. Um, I love Mexico. And so I kind of always thought, for a long time, I thought that's what I'm going to do is something like that. Okay. Um, but you did go to college? I did. So uh, I went to University of Pennsylvania. And I was there for three years. And after my junior year, um, excuse me, yes, a good friend of mine, uh, Mike Lamb, and I would kind of tease each other for a while or dared each other to take a semester off and do some traveling. And we ended up uh, going to Southeast Asia. And we spent a full four months in Thailand, Malaysia, did a little Cambodia, headed up into Burma. And while I was there, uh, the last few months, actually, or last two months, is when my dad had taken this trip down to Nicaragua. And uh, Dale Dagger and guy Ken Ross invited him down just to check it out. And my dad ended up staying for several months. And while I was there, my dad started sending me emails, showing me the photos of the surf, photos of the land, and how beautiful everything was, uh, how you know attractive the young ladies here were. And he started saying, hey, Kent, Dale, remember Dale? He's got this surf camp, uh, this surf tour company, not surf camp. Um, and he's also trying to get into some real estate and doing other things. He could really use some help. Um running a business, you know how to run my camp, you know, come here and do this. Um, and I resisted at first. I'm like, nah, I, you know, I'm already, I'm already indebted college. I took the semester off. I, I'm going to go back and finish up. And my dad, it's so funny remembering him trying to convince me to not go back to school and go do this. And, uh, it finally worked. And I went, okay, I'm going to do this. I'll come down there for six months. Um, so I did, I made, I got back to the U S 
worked out with the college, made sure that, hey, I, I've still got a spot even if I leave for another six plus months. That wasn't going to be an issue at all. Um, I hadn't actually told my friends yet until I knew that I was going to be able to do this. And so it was kind of this homecoming for me. I came back to all my friends in college and said, hey, guys, guess what? I'm not actually staying. I'm going back down to Nicaragua. Um, and made the move. Um, and it's, probably, again, one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. That's so funny because that just jarred my memory of seeing you for the first time on Dale's boat coming from San Juan and introducing yourself. And I had known your father because yeah. he had been here uh, really trying to encourage the town. Mm-hmm. Pueblo Olimpio was what yep. he implemented when he first came here, really encouraging the town to put their garbage in garbage cans. <laughs> <laughs> and all these uh, Pueblo Olimpio garbage cans were painted all over town, which was always your dad's kind of impression that he left for me on this, this little Pueblo. And then having you stay for as long as you did, getting to know you and then your brother, super cool. And then you left and poof, you're gone. You, you did your six months. Well, I actually ended up, so I stayed for six months. That was the original piece. And the deal that I had worked out, I don't think there's any secret, uh, was I wasn't getting paid by Dale. In fact, I had to borrow some money for living expenses while I was here, which again, this was in 2005. It was pretty cheap to live down here. Um, but each month, that I worked was a payment towards a piece of property of Dale's. And that was, he was kind of, I was working to get a, my first piece of property here. Oh, and so, that's cool. and after six months, I decided I was having a good time. I'm going to stay. Like I got his website, you know, better, kind of more hooked up. I had organized Dale's business a little bit more than he had it. Uh, he got some stuff into Excel. Uh, I started doing some sales. I was helping to run both sides and I was having too much fun. So I decided to stay another six months. Um, then after that full year, it's like, hey, uh, I better go finish school. Like, let me just get it done. At that point, um, my dad, I worked with my dad and we acquired another piece of property. And at, I knew that I loved Nicaragua and I'd be back. So I said, hey, you know, let me, let me go on back to the States and finish up. And then, so you went back, you finished up and you got the job with Yodel. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so I went back. I actually came back again to Nicaragua and spent another four months um Right before I finished up, and I worked for uh, um, Paradise Developments, a guy named Ken Ross. It's a real estate company, and actually, I I worked there. Ken Ross, the same Ken Ross I was here. Yep, exactly. Okay. Um, and so he he, I went to work for him instead of for Dale when I came back. And what we really did was spread Pueblo Olimpio to a larger degree, kind of under the umbrella of that development, real estate development company. Mm-hmm. And that summer, I went into all the schools around San Juan del Sur, and I was giving kind of talks to the kids, you know, kindergarten through. Uh, the first couple years of high school about not littering and keeping the area clean and keeping the oceans clean. And I worked in getting more donations and I actually worked with the municipality here in uh, Tola to help uh, them continue to pick up all the trash from the barrels of Pueblo Olympio things. That's what I focused on. Then when I went back to the U S to finish up, Ken was still, uh, he'd given me a job offer to come back and do continue to do real estate with him. And I was really torn because two of my other friends were starting this company at the time called NatPal, later became Yodel. And I was torn. It's a cool startup idea, but it's a startup. It could fail. Who knows how it's going to go? Plus, I've already got one foot in the door in Nicaragua. I've got land down there. I really want to do something. And I kind of at the time made the decision that Nicaragua is going to be there. And I have this opportunity to check something out, which will be gone if I don't. So I decided to stay last minute, actually, and uh, work for Yodel. Uh, what is Yodel? Can you explain? So, Napel, then Yodel, and actually was just recently acquired by web.com. We do online marketing services for small to medium sized businesses. 
So everything from building websites to doing search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing. And over the years, the business grew. Um, and turn, we had lots of other small tools for small businesses to do email marketing and reputation management. Uh, and this is service industries like, well, dentists, lawyers, contractors, et cetera, all across the U.S. And they were just acquired by web? Web.com. For yeah. how much? Uh, it was, what is it, 300 30 million roughly. Wow, it's so funny being here for three weeks. I've forgotten all the details. <laughs> but were you uh, included in that payout a little bit? So um, from the beginning? Yeah. Um, I'll say I, I, it was never as, it wasn't as high as I once thought it would have been. Uh-huh. Uh, which part of the reason why I continue to work for a little while afterwards. It was not a, I'm not, I'm not a rich man right now, but it was definitely enough to create the seed money for me to come down here on this trip. And now I'm doing it much more comfortably than if I had. So you didn't cash out with millions, but. Right. But I've got a little bit of cash in the bank. That's great. Yeah. And good, good for you. And then so this was always in the back of your mind to come back mm-hmm. and start your dream what? What was your dream to come back to and start? Yeah. Um, so, again, I've got a history with my dad and uncle and working down here of running surf tours. Um, I've In my life, I've had other jobs. I've worked in restaurants and, and on hospitality. And we acquired uh, with my family and with some other friends, you know, something like eight or nine different pieces of property around here. And so we've always thought, hey, as the Gigante community is growing, we know, especially during certain times of the year, there's not enough places for people to stay. I thought, you know, we could build a small hotel. Maybe it's a hostel, maybe some bungalows, something of that nature. Um, we also have this 50-acre piece of uh, property that we bought really cheap 13 years ago. And we're like, I don't know what we're going to do, but one day we'll do something with it. Um, and we really didn't quite know what we were going to do. Um, in fact, on this trip, uh, now that I'm living here over the next few months, people keep asking me, what are you going to do? And I said, well, for the first few months, I'm going to sit and think a lot and figure it out. <laughs> what is, what's going to make the most sense? It's going to make me happy. Um, give me, you know, self-fulfillment also to help the community and also to take part in growing Higante in a positive way. Right. So you quit with you you got paid enough to kind of come down here with some seed money and, and sit and yep. think as you had just described but you also had mentioned in a conversation prior to starting this that you have a tree farm. Yep. And you're farming trees for what? Just for the fun of it? Yeah. So my brother, uh, Nick Warren, who you know, um, he and I are kind of in this. It's a family business, you could call it. Warren, Nicaragua. With my dad, although my dad has essentially has stepped out. He's got his business. And he's like, you kids, you, can, you take it from here. Um, he has been into woodworking for a number of years and he's good with working with his hands and he, you know, diff- he just really educated himself on the subject. And he, ca- he came up completely with this idea of, Hey, let's start this farm and we're going to grow teak and mahogany and pochote and some other trees. And it's a long-term investment, but it's also part of making a kind of sustainable agriculture. And, um, so that, that concept is making it that you can make that part of a, uh, a tourism piece, um, as well as teaching locals on how to farm sustainably. Um, and again, teak and mahogany in these woods are, are, can be quite profitable in the long term. It's a 15, 20 year outlook, uh, for the farm to make it a profitable thing. And now is this on the 50 acres you mentioned? Is yeah. that where you have it? So we've got it out there. Um, we're almost done, actually. We just started actually planting a few months ago. It took us a year thinking about it and planning it. And all of it is a lot harder to do remote. Um, in fact, that was one of the deals that I, I worked out with my brothers, and I can get into that later. I, I quit three separate times at Yodel over the years, and it was always to come to Nicaragua, and somehow I got convinced to stay. And there was always a great decision. I love the company. Um, but the last time, I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to stay for another little bit longer, but I'm 
I will finance you to go down. And so over the last year and a half, he came down six or seven times to start this thing. But it's more difficult to get any project off the ground remote. It's Nicaragua. Um, let's get into that because this is something <laughs> I do try to bring up to everybody, yeah. the reality of this kind of lifestyle design that you've chosen yeah. to live. So let's talk about the difficulties you've had over the last year of just planting trees. Yeah. Um, you know, at the core of it is no one and any business anywhere in the U.S., is no one's going to do something as well as you are at your project. If somebody doesn't have a vested interest in getting something done, I don't think anyone is motivated to do something. Um, and so from afar, you know, trying to conceptualize, hey, we want to take this piece of property and we want to take it from, you know, it's bosque, it's, it's just completely packed uh, with other plants and we need to clear it while keeping certain trees there and we need to plant at the right, find the right trees, do the research. What do we want to do? Make sure that they're good, uh, seeds and everything. Uh, farm, you know, uh, dig it up the right way, plant it in the right way so it's not just haphazard. Make sure that it stays watered. Make sure that somebody's watching it, uh, so that people don't come in and steal your trees. That's the thing that happens. Um, it's hard to find the people who are going to care about it or even educated enough who know the subject. Um, and so that's challenging. And I'd say, I mean, that's just to do this. But even when we're on, and I, I realize I'm rambling a little bit here, is even when I'm on the ground here and working with people, it's a challenge to get people to do things like show up to work each day. You're paying people like, hey, if you show up, I'm going to pay you. And we pay people more than like the going rate. Um, people just don't show up or people get sick. Or people can't get to work because they're poor. And that's the reality of trying to work in a com small community is you're trying to help people, but they have challenges even of trying to, to be helped. So doing it remotely of saying, hey, trying to communicate with somebody who doesn't check their email every day or may not have saldo on their telefono <laughs> to receive your call or to call you back when you need to, it's just nearly impossible. And that's one of the reasons why over the last few years, I didn't start something earlier is because... Even when I'm here, things fail and trying to do it remote, it just is like altogether impossible. Right. Um, and you know, there's so many different aspects of what makes doing business down here hard. Um, you know, power goes out, you know, that you've been here for that. It's like, oops, electricity. Even when we had this meeting or I needed to do a Skype interview with somebody, nope, there's no power. There's no way you can do it. Okay. And that's it. And you just have to reschedule the next day. Or I remember back in the day, oops, there'd be no water. And it's like, well, Water is the basic, uh, you need that to live. And it's like, well, there's just none. And so how do you like actually plan to have a team of 20 people out there doing something if you can't get them water? And it's right. those types of basic challenges, uh, that make it hard, but it's also the fun, right? Is it's not for everybody to try to be down here. Luckily, I've grown up in working in the middle of nowhere in Mexico where they have the exact same challenges. And I've 13 years ago before there was internet, et cetera, out here, I learned how to do it here. So I'd say for the people who have the patience and actually just enjoy the problem solving and the adventure of it, it's so fulfilling. But even for us, it can be really frustrating. Absolutely. Let's go back to the water thing. Um, do you have your own well? Did you have to dig a well on your property to get your plants water? Yeah. When we bought that uh, 50 acres, there was a dry well on it. So that we had a start and we just basically dug a lot deeper. Um, okay. and you, there's people who know and you, you can pay people to come out there and dig it a little bit deeper. And, uh, we did the water testing on it to make sure that it was all okay, et cetera. And in fact, we, we had good water for a while. Um, and we started that was useful. And then all of a sudden the dry season, uh, excuse me, even in the wet season, we went through a patch and it wasn't, uh, raining and all of a sudden it just got dry. 
and our workers are calling us from and saying, hey, guys, there's no water here. So it's like, lo and behold, okay, let's dig deeper. And sometimes you just have to kind of do that. Um, And it's one of those things that's also challenging, and I'll give a little bit of an anecdote, is we had somebody say, oh, there's no water. We got to pay somebody. I need, we need to pay a few guys to come out and uh, dig this thing deeper because there's nothing we can do. Well, we had somebody go check. And the fact is, it was just false. There was water. And we have, you know, people here and there, they're trying to kind of force us to pay, you know, for extra guys and cousins to come on and get paid to work when we don't actually need them to do it. So that's one of the challenges. If you're not sitting here watching what's happening, it's very easy for somebody to take advantage of you. And at the end of the day, they're taking advantage of you for 20 bucks here or there, a hundred bucks there. So it's not breaking the bank per se, but it makes it frustrating. And then when their real problems arise and they're trying to tell you about it, you're always skeptical. Is it really wrong? Or are you just tell, is the truck really broke down and you're just trying or not? You know, are you trying to get the, your mechanic a little extra money or not? And that's why it's, again, I laugh as I talk about it. It's the fun and the frustration of doing it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, especially with the water thing, because Gigante at this point, the little pueblo of Gigante has a, tri- a serious water issue. Right. I mean, we have uh, geologists, is that the type of person who comes out here and measures water, but we have a lot of um, university professors from Colorado, Boulder, or Denver, Colorado, mm-hmm. coming down here and testing our water, which is brackish at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mixed with salt water, and um, their projection is that the water table won't replenish itself for another five years. Yeah. You know, from this point forward. So, I mean, the town's struggling with water. Mm-hmm. And it's incredible to see as a Westerner where we have water in abundance. Even though in California we've been in a drought and there's like water warnings and everything like that. You like, can still your turn your tap on. You can still turn your tap on. Where here it's like when you turn the tap on, you're getting salty water that's usually brown because there's the water table's just been tapped out because of the drought we've gone through. And, you know, for the business owners like, John, excuse me, John at Higante Bay, um, he's trying to make money, run a business and profit off of tourism. And if he can't provide his clients with water that is showerable, like you can't lube up with so- soap in the shower. You have to use liquid soap because the soap becomes hard and like impossible to lube up on. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's- and, and like you said, with the, the, this, this type of struggle, it's not for the faint of heart. Like we come and there's a sick sort of enjoyment that I think a lot of us get from it where we are an active participant in our own existence and survival in this environment. Yeah. And again, the adventure of it, but it's not just adventure. I can, you know, I laugh through that or the problem solving, but it's, as you said, like a community not having real water is a serious, it's a health challenge. It's people are going to struggle. And what I like about the idea of, you know, John, I think, you know, reverence for him and everything that he's done out here and other, you know, business owners is that we're trying to bring awareness to a community and we want to profit, right? We, we want to be able to make a living for ourselves down here. But I don't think anyone here is that I know of right now is doing it without having a thought of how are we going to benefit this community? Because again, it's, it's a win-win. It's not a, we get the water and they don't. It's like, if there's no water, no one's getting water. And so we can bring it and help and help everyone do a lot better. Absolutely. And I like your mindset. You, you know, like your dad, you, you're, you're following in his footsteps where, you know, it's always community first. Like, how are we going to benefit them, but then benefit ourselves as well? Because if it's not a harmonious relationship, no one benefits. Right. It's a lose-lose. And it's, uh, I feel like it's, well, maybe it's not easier. Actually, no, I think it is easier to have a win-win as long as you've got that mentality. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to tie in though, you know, you brought a lovely girlfriend with you on this adventure and, I just met her recently and found out she has 
past experiences living abroad. So this isn't something that is completely shocking to her, you know, but it's still Nicaragua. It's still difficult, you know, as, as a couple making this decision, cause she left her job as well. I mean, you cut ties, like you made the decision, like this is the new life that we are going to challenge ourselves with, come down and attempt to build together. Have there been challenges in making that decision? Or, I mean, since it's so new, it's still exciting and fun. Well, it's definitely exciting. We really just got here three weeks ago. Um, but very early on in our relationship, I mean, I, I've always known that I was going to do this. Um, I think she remembers it. She says it was our third date. And I kind of broached, hey, you know, I'm going to move to Nicaragua in the next year. So just letting you know, uh, <laughs> how do you feel about that? And she was immediately really into it. One of her goals has been to move to another country and learn to speak Spanish fluently. Um, so she's traveled quite a bit, as you said. She grew up in Oregon, uh, but her mother is Brazilian. Um, and so from age, I want to say 18 to 27-ish, she moved back to Brazil. And so she speaks completely fluent Portuguese. Um, she's very comfortable in a Latin American uh, country. She's done travels in Europe as well. So she's comfortable in that aspect. It's one of the things that you know, I fell in love with. Um, she's a traveler like I am. And as it, we, we talked about it for a long time and we were going to move down there, quit our jobs and do that. And she was, you know, very trusting because I showed her photos and videos of Gigante and hey, this is where we're going to live. And she's like, yeah, I'm on board. Um, I thought, let's take a trip down there just to make sure. And so last, uh, November, December, we came down here and actually only spent a week. Um, but, uh, we stayed actually at Dale's place and I walked over to Playa Medio and we you know, saw John's spot and she loved the beach. She said, yeah. I could definitely live here. And I was like, yes, good. Okay, we're locked in. Uh, and so then we started um, uh, making our final plans. We weren't sure exactly which month we wanted to do. We knew we wanted to do it. Uh, I wanted to work a few more months. She wanted to work a few more months. Uh, we both like, really liked the places we're working generally. So, um, yeah, we, we chose a date. We gave notice uh, at our jobs, and we started, uh, you know, moved out of our apartment, packed up, and did some other things, and and came down. I bought a one-way ticket. <laughs> I mean, that's just, yeah, swinging the bat, just gambling. Um, you know, for somebody out there who likes your story and would want to try it as well, like, could you give them, impart any advice or things to think about if they would want to do the same thing that you just did? Yeah, I would say come down and check it out first just to make sure you're really comfortable. I've met people along the way, travelers from when I was working down here in a surf tour company before, who came down here were here for a week and said, oh, I'm, I'm going to love it. And they even bought a piece of property and then somehow later on came down for another, spent two months down here and realized, actually, no, it was too frustrating. It wasn't what they expected longer term and then haven't been back in 10 years and at all and have kind of abandoned it. So make sure you check it out, but then have patience, right? Um, learn to smile through struggles if you're going to be down here. Um, you've got to love the lifestyle. Um, I'd say... There's some great groups on Facebook. In the last little while, I know Julia, my girlfriend, she's really learned a lot and become more comfortable from joining these Facebook groups like, you know, uh, expats in Nicaragua, and there's there's a host of them. And so people are out there sharing information about their experiences, which is something that, you know, 13 years ago didn't exist. So I'd say just do plenty of reading and research and make some friends kind of digitally before you get here. So when you arrive, it doesn't feel like a lonely place because um, it can be. Um, if you don't know people and you're, you're going through these struggles by yourself, you don't need to do that. There's a community of people. And I'd say all of the people who have moved down here doing it, we're friendly individuals. So like, you know, we've gone through some struggles and we want to see other people do well too. So just reach out for a helping hand and don't reinvent the wheel when you're doing it. 
That'd probably be my big piece of advice. That's great advice. Is there a place that if someone did want to reach out and ask a few questions, they could find you at? Is it your Facebook the best place to find? Uh, you? Facebook is easy. Yeah, just Kent Warren. Um, also find my email addresses, kentwarren at gmail.com. It's very straightforward. And your company um, is Warren Nicaragua. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, kind of an umbrella company that my brother and I created many years ago, uh, just Warren Nicaragua. Uh, we don't even have a website up uh, yet, um, but underneath that umbrella will be this tree farm is there whatever future uh, property development things that we do will be under the auspices of that as well. Mm -hmm. Can we get a little perspective, if you don't mind sharing it, just before we close? You know, when you did originally buy those pieces of property, like how much were they going for? So a couple of the spots, you know, here on the beach, I want to say were 8 or 10K, something like right that. Beach, beach these road. are the ones, yeah, and these are the uh, the leases, the arrendamientos. So they're leased. Um, yeah, they're leased, long-term leases. Um, I mean, my stuff from Dale back in the day, uh, which is up, what I was essentially working for, was 15K mm-hmm. uh, for a lot up there. Uh, that 50-acre piece, I'm trying to remember, and then granted, that's a, a, that's inland, there's really nothing on there, it's on flat land. I want to say all in, that was probably $12,000 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um and there's a few different pieces, you know, but it was all pretty cheap at the time. And in fact, you know, my dad was a big pusher. Um, you know, the 50 acre piece was like, what are we going to do with it? And my dad was like, it's cheap. Just do it. Like, believe me, it'll be worth it one day. Yeah. And I'll, I'll actually even say that's, that's an anecdote that is, that is important is my dad lived through some of this where I was born in Tepic, Nayari, or near San Francisco in that area of Mexico, where he was back there in the you know late 70s. And he said that he had people offering lots on the beach and near for $2,000, $3,000, and he couldn't scrape up any money to do it. And you know, and that was in Puerto Vallarta. And if you guys know what it is now, multi-million dollar hotels on the beach. And so you know, he really pushed us. It's like, get the money, work. And I worked when I was in college, scrape up a few thousand dollars and just do it because one day it'll make sense. It's amazing. What do you think that beachfront lot that you purchased for eight grand can be worth now? If you were to sell the title or the lease? You know, I've got a, I don't know, a soft offer out there, um, for 80 K, um, which I've decided right now I'm not trying to sell. It's, it's kind of interesting in the last few months, a few people have contacted and said, Hey, they, they, would you sell this piece of property? Would you sell this piece of property? I, I've got a buyer or somebody who would buy it. And I'm right now I'm going, Hey, luckily I'm, I'm blessed in the fact that I don't, I'm not hurting for cash right now. And I just finally cut the cord to come back to do something with it. So all offers are kind of off the table right now. I just let, I would, let me see what I want to do with things. Uh, congratulations. That's a beautiful end to this beautiful uh, story, <laughs> Ken. Thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, David. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.